Where is a memory? Is it stored inside of us, entire and complete? Or is it a mosaic of experience fragments recollected from bits and pieces of sensory input? Is it a feedback loop, folding now into then, truth into fiction? Psychologist Rosalind Cartwright once observed that memory is never a precise duplicate of the original. It is a continuing act of creation. But maybe that's something we've known all along. After all, didn't the ancient Greeks consider Mnemosyne, the goddess of memory, the mother of the muses? Isn't it to her that Homer's speaker pleads to remember how to sing the past back into being? Could this be what Kafka had in mind when he wrote, I am a memory come alive? From the Stonehill College English Department and Creative Writing Program, it's the Electro Library, a podcast, a literary neural network, a philosophical space-time remix, a kaleidoscope of consciousness on electromagnetic waves. Each episode explores a single theme across time, cultures, and disciplines. The Electro Library, a cabinet of curiosities for your ears. Episode 2, Memory. What is your earliest memory? I guess, like, just, like, playing in my playroom when I was little. Um, probably, like, rolling down a grass hill at my old house when I was, like, four or five. Moving to New York when I was six years old. Um, in kindergarten, my dad took me, my brother, my sister out of school, and we had a picnic at a park. Going to Disney with my family when I was five years old. Driving around in my little Barbie Jeep. <laughs> what is your favorite memory? My favorite memory would have to be um, cooking with my grandmother. Um, she's kind of started my love for food and cooking and me wanting to start my bakery in the future sometime. I guess like school, like first days of school and stuff like that. <laughs> I remember like easily. I guess there was this one summer night in high school where my friends and I, it was pretty late at night, my friends and I were just driving and like singing along to the, to someone's playlist. Um, my favorite memory is probably spending summers down the Cape with my family. I have a lot of good memories, probably just like hanging out at home as a child. Going to Maine uh, when I was about 15. Hanging out with my dad. Yeah. My first reading will be from the Aeneid by Virgil, and I'm reading from the translation of Alan Mandelbaum. This is from Book One. Just at the center of the city stood a thickly shaded wood. This was the place where, when they landed, the Phoenicians first hurled there by whirlwind and by wave, dug up an omen that Queen Juno had pointed out the head of a fierce stallion. This had meant the nation's easy wealth and fame in war throughout the ages. Here, Sidonian Dido was building a stupendous shrine for Juno, enriched with gifts and with the goddess's statue, where flights of steps led up to brazen thresholds. The architraves were set on posts of brass. The grating hinges of the doors were brass. Within this grove, the sights so strange to him have for the first time stilled Aeneas's fear, where he first dared to hope he had found shelter. 
to trust more surely in his shattered fortunes. For while he waited for the queen, he studied everything in that huge sanctuary, marveling at a city rich enough for such a temple, at the handiwork of rival artists, at their skillful tasks. He sees the wars of Troy set out in order, the battles famous now through all the world, the sons of Atreus and of Priam, and Achilles, savage enemy to both. He halted. As he wept, he cried, Akates, where on this earth is there a land, a place that does not know our sorrows? Look, there is Priam, and here too the honorable finds its due, and there are tears for passing things. Here too things mortal touch the mind. Forget your fears. This fame will bring you some deliverance, he speaks. And with many tears and sighs, he feeds his soul on what is nothing but a picture. Remember the Alamo. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. But why remember a destructive love affair? Here at Lacuna, we have perfected a safe, effective technique for the focused erasure of troubling memories. Our patented non-surgical procedure will rid you of painful memories and allow you a new and lasting peace of mind you never imagined possible. Don't forget, with Lacuna, you can forget. would like to share the story that happened to me when I first encountered death in a way that really got to me. It's about when I was 10 years old and I was traveling with my two brothers and my sister, my mom and my dad in India. And we happened to be in Calcutta. Now Calcutta is this big teeming city and it's particularly famous for a temple to the Hindu goddess Kali, who is the goddess of just about sex and violence, but also the cycles of time, the cycles of life. And we all went in to the temple and saw people milling around, and I'm looking at everything with my 10-year-old eyes, and we go over to this little sunken place at one point in the temple, and there are smells and sounds, and it's kind of dark, but not terribly dark. And I'm looking down, and there's this little goat. And these people take this little goat, and they stick it in a kind of guillotine, and the head chops off. And then the head rolls down, and the blood came out, and I just kind of stared at it. Because you're 10 years old, you've never seen anything like this, and you're staring at it, and it's fascinating. And then we kind of went on. I think my parents maybe were a little surprised, but they didn't have any existential reaction to it. And I didn't either. And this is something I only came to realize. Oh, maybe five or five or six years ago, actually, in one of my classes when I was talking about this, that I actually processed it, and the processing didn't come out till about a week later. And what happened was just about a week later, I was reading a comic about the past anyway, and I was thinking all of a sudden, oh my goodness, time passes. I'm going to be dead someday. And then I thought, oh, my God, my dad's going to be dead. And my mom's going to be dead. And I felt sick. I really felt I was going to throw up. And I was so upset. 
and I couldn't sleep. And the next day I told my dad I was really afraid of dying. And he gave me advice that didn't help at the time, but it's probably good advice, which is you have to live life so that you appreciate everything because things will pass. But what I didn't put together until a little while ago was that that fear of death probably came from my seeing that goat decapitate it. And it came out that way later in a completely different context. And for two or three years after that, every day I would wake up and think, am I remembering about death or have I forgotten? I really want to forget. And eventually it sort of worked its way out. But it's clearly PTSD of a sort. It really affected me, though I couldn't really talk about it to anybody. And eventually it sort of, I think puberty probably brought it, <laughs> brought an end to it. The second passage is from Homer's Odyssey, translated by Robert Fitzgerald. The first passage is from Book One. The famous minstrel sang on before them, and they sat still and listened while he sang that bitter song, The Homecoming of Achaeans, how by Athena's will they fared from Troy, and in her high room, careful Penelope, Icarius' daughter, heeded the holy song. She came then down the long stairs of her house, this beautiful lady, with two maids in train attending her as she approached the suitors. And near a pillar of the roof she paused, her shining veil drawn across her cheeks, the two girls close to her and still, and through her tears spoke to the noble minstrel. Phemius, other spells you know, high deeds of gods and heroes as the poets tell them. Let these men hear some other. Let them sit silent and drink their wine. But sing no more this bitter tale that wears my heart away. It opens in me again the wound of longing for one incomparable ever in my mind, his fame all Hellas knows, and Midland Argos. But Telemachus intervened and said to her, Mother, why do you grudge our own dear minstrel joy of song, wherever his thought may lead? Poets are not to blame, but Zeus, who gives what fate he pleases to adventurous men. Here is no reason for reproof, to sing the news of the Danaeans. Men like best a song that rings like morning on the ear. But you must nerve yourself and try to listen. Odysseus was not the only one at Troy, never to know the day of his homecoming. Others, how many others, lost their lives. The lady gazed in wonder and withdrew, her son's clear wisdom echoing in her mind. But when she had mounted to her rooms again with her two handmaids, then she fell to weeping for Odysseus, her husband. Gray-eyed Athena presently cast a sweet spell on her eyes. The Roth Memory Course, a simple and scientific method of improving the memory and increasing mental power. This course will equip your memory, and therefore your mind, to accomplish greater things with less effort than you ever dreamed possible. Just as a hammer or any other tool in a man's hand is really an extension of the hand, so your better memory will be an extension of your mind. Your mental power is largely wasted unless you learn how to use it. 
To learn my method is so easy, so swift, so certain, and so free from hard work that it is likely a fascinating game. Any man, woman, boy, or girl of average intelligence can possess quickly an accurate memory. It does not take a genius to be a master of the memory. It is all very simple, as I shall show you. So I'll be reading from this book, uh, Reconsolidation, um, and it's actually a book that I wrote uh, many years ago. I wrote it six years ago, uh, pretty soon after my mother passed away, about a month or two right after she passed away. I couldn't do very much writing uh, in the immediacy because I was dealing with it, but this I wrote out and it sort of just came out like vomit on the page. So it's very raw and it's very not edited. And then many years later, one of my publishers approached me and said, I, you know, we want to publish this as a book. It wasn't edited very much. That was one thing that I insisted on because I didn't know how to get back into that particular frame of grief that I had been in. And so it's, you know, I think because grief sort of evolves and all of that evolves. So I will read a little bit from it and I'll jump around. Ghosts have no memory, but I do. The memories congregate like a slow-moving herd of dots. My mother haunts my dreams. Last night, I dreamed that she insisted on being there with us, my brother and dad and I, and even mentioned that we should all go out for dinner tonight. We never eat anymore, she insisted. In my dream, I told my brother that it hurt, her own denial that she was dead, her insistence on being in our lives the way she used to, but these are my dreams and not hers, so who is the ghost here? This all becomes a languid conversation, a merging of that space and this one, an atmosphere that is all once too familiar and impossible to make out. As certain memories are destabilized, the way I remember an identity changes, like looking through a hole in the wall from a particular angle, moving away and coming back, looking through the opening again and seeing something else something different, but all too familiar as it had already seeped into your brain. Memories consolidated and reconsolidated so many times, I don't remember the faces of my mother anymore. I can see a face, but the emotional state I'm in, it could really be any face, every face looks like her face. Only dream glimpses allow me to see her, but even in my dreams there are obstacles. In one dream I saw her, but my brother held me back. It's Alma, I told her. She's not real, she's dead, remember? Don't touch her, that's not her. He grabbed my hand, led me up a stairway that went nowhere. We were running away from something, an incoming fire perhaps. His house is always on the brink of burning down. Sometimes we become frozen in anticipation, wondering what the truth behind a moment is. A life haunted by the memories littered in the spaces we force ourselves into. Dean Koontz writes, we are haunted, and regardless of the architecture with which we surround ourselves, our ghosts stay with us until we ourselves are ghosts. But we haunt ourselves, it comes from within, shame and guilt, become the inutterable words whispered by the wind in passing but unable to pass through our own lips. The impressions left on us become horrific, a face, a stare, closed eyes, and the inert presence of a mother, who suddenly is a rare sight, dusty and far. Multiple perspectives on a life fall back, and a new sequence of events is created. 
one constituted by the good times, the good times. There were so many moments pristine and peaceful, but why when she was alive did I never notice, and why when she was alive did I only remember the times we fought, wanted to kill each other, stared at each other with so much hatred, mother and daughter locked in deathmatch after deathmatch. I remember when she finally flatlined. In that moment, I felt a tinge of relief, but also a tinge of, oh shit, she's really dead. Even though she had been brain dead for all those hours, it hadn't really felt like she was gone yet, like she had just been sleeping there in bed, that she still might wake up. I remember when we all heard the beep, and when the nurse officially pronounced her dead, jotted down the time of death that my dad had what is called a psychogenic non-epileptic seizure, collapsed on the ground, started kicking and smashing his head on the floor. Eugene got down on his knees and held my father's head while I grabbed his arms, tried to caress him and calm him down. It took several nurses to keep him pinned, and the entire time he was flailing all his limbs, he kept screaming in Korean, No, take me instead, you fuckers, you fucking bastards, take me instead. Bring her back and take me instead. Fucking bastards, you're taking the wrong one. Take me, take me. It's my fault, so take me. This text becomes a repository of certain memories, all of which will be changed or recreated by the end. The memories, and consequently the text, become subject to continual adjustment and modification. Simultaneously, the ghosts shift, ask new questions, recollect their own memories, and when a passerby knocks at the door, I open it with a welcoming attitude. In my dreams, I catch myself spying on myself. I become the ghost haunting myself as I wander through dream worlds, unraveling threads and unable to really touch anything. But I follow and watch and see what the memories do to my body, what they do to me. I never dreamed about my mother before her death, yet she has haunted my writing all my life. In all my texts there has always been a mother, different sorts of mothers, different images of a real mother sewing the swift canvas of strange familial bonds. There is a thin film of muteness over everything I now encounter. Ghost, just another word for mother, just another word for memory, just another word for gone. Ghosts wander in and out, but there is only one ghost I am concerned with. She is a ghost that comes only when called, and she is rarely summoned. Who am I to the ghost, I who am living? What can someone like me be to a ghost but another ghost to myself? Do my ghostly qualities show in public? Do I haunt the spaces I occupy too? How does the architecture change the construction of identity, the strategy for life when ghosthood is so often self-imposed, when ghosts are haunted by the ghosts of others, when I can't rely on my memory of anything except for the events that occur in dreams? I'm inclined to continue wandering this complex labyrinth. The ceiling is low enough to touch and I can sense the limits of my body, but something keeps dragging my soul outward, so I'm constantly struggling with this process of continual conjuration, a stubborn and slippery gesture. I love how you jumped around and the parts you included were all parts I was hoping that you would get to. So thank you so very much for that. It sounded wonderful too. So I know you had said that you were trying to write it from that particular frame of grief. And I was wondering if you could maybe talk a little bit about what writing from that immediate place actually did if anything to transform the memory or the experience like did the the writing itself 
do something. Yeah, um, I mean, it's interesting. It's, it's, I think writing about loss is, sometimes I think I felt like I was thinking that I might be able to remember these things and process these things from the safe distance. But as I was writing it, I was sort of constantly devastated, both just by the loss itself, but also the realization of all of these changes in memory. Um, so I would do things like go through her old photo albums and her yearbooks and sort of realize that this other person was a person that I didn't know. Um, and so more gaps were created in the loss that I was already experiencing. So I thought a lot about consolidation and reconsolidation, these processes of memory. Um, and I thought a lot about that because I couldn't remember certain things and I could remember other things very clearly and that would change from day to day. And that was also one of the things that I was sort of warned about is that how grief changes your relationship to memory. Um, so even now, I feel like I have a strange relationship to memory and that this particular death kind of cuts my life in half and that everything that happened before that uh, falls into this other category of very murky memory. And so I was sort of afraid of solidifying things, but also felt like I needed to solidify what I could before I lost it. It's also the first book of nonfiction that I had out in the world, and I think I was used to being able to hide behind my fiction uh, as a writer before this. And so that was sort of odd to have this very particular snapshot of one moment in time where I was experiencing this out in the world, and people would come and talk to me, and they would tell me about how this book helped them. And I was glad for that. Um, and I think they felt like we had this intimate connection, but also I was no longer that same person and I'm no longer that person now. Um, it's all part of me, but it's, I, you know, everything, it keeps evolving, uh, but the writing doesn't change. This poem that I wrote is called Lori. I am out of many, one people. I am the Saturday morning stockings, fancy lace socks, frilled underwear, and streaming oatmeal and buttered bread. Those organs playing from eight till three. Climbing the mango tree with my cousins and eating to our heart's content was all right until I grew out of those stockings, until I was bursting out of my shirts and suddenly that button-up dress couldn't button up anymore. I would squat and watch as the dried pods of whatever those plants were in the yard shot open in our little buckets of water. I took the little green nubs out of the middle of the flower and stuck it on my forehead. It was my horn the one that I used to be so mad about when all my boy cousins could aim. My grandmother's dirty mouth rubbed off on me as I chanted my first cusses at Christmas time. My cousins could get anything they wanted at the drop of a hat. Mother, twin sis, and I worked hard and struggled harder, but still. They got whatever they wanted at the turn of a dime this time. The rage of my heart grew, but this was my first slap of reality. I learned of money and what it could do. Make cousins envy each other, tear families apart, get you a banging house kill you. Seeing the type of people that came in and out of my house was the kick to my ribs. The pulling of my heart to reality. The hunger that came to my grandmother for what they didn't have. The sick that came when they couldn't afford medicine. The poorer than us who just wanted to chat. Rotting teeth, happy smiles, naked and carefree, running up and down the block. This was home.
how I discovered an easy way to remember. When I was a young man, my memory was below normal. It was because my memory was so wretched that I was determined to find some way to cure the trouble. The pictures made on the brain were blurred, indistinct, and foggy. I might be introduced to a man and in 20 seconds would realize that I had forgotten his name. My ears had heard the name spoken, my eyes had seen his face, but my brain had failed to register any picture of either or to connect the two permanently. But I had to do something, because my poor memory was too heavy a handicap for me to succeed. So I set about evolving a method of my own to supply my own great need. I worked along simple, natural, yet scientific lines. It proved effective, and I was astounded at the progress I made in improving my memory. It was through the enthusiasm and insistence of my friends that I was practically forced into making memory training my life work. Now 50 or 100 persons in any audience may rise, one after the other, everyone telling me his name. While my back is turned, they may all change seats to different parts of the hall. Then I can call each man by name. People gasp when I do such things. Yet, with the simple memory system I have devised, any one of them, with a little application, can learn to accomplish even more difficult feats. From In Search of Lost Time, Marcel Proust. Translation by Lydia Davis. It is a waste of effort for us to try to summon our past. All the exertions of our intelligence are useless. The past is hidden outside the realm of our intelligence and beyond its reach, in some material object, in the sensation that this material object would give us, which we do not suspect. It depends on chance whether we encounter this object before we die, or do not encounter it. For many years already, everything about Combray that was not the theater and drama of my bedtime had ceased to exist for me, when one day in winter as I returned home, my mother, seeing that I was cold, suggested that contrary to my habit, I have a little tea. I refused at first, and then I do not know why I changed my mind. She sent for one of those squat, plump cakes called Petite Madeleine, that look as though they have been molded in the grooved valve of a scallop shell. And soon, mechanically, oppressed by the gloomy day, and the prospect of another sad day to follow, I carried to my lips a spoonful of the tea in which I had let soften a bit of Madeleine. But at the very instant when the mouthful of tea mixed with cake crumbs touched my palate, I quivered, attentive to the extraordinary thing that was happening inside me. A delicious pleasure had invaded me, isolated me, without my having any notion as to its cause. It had immediately rendered the vicissitudes of life unimportant to me. Its disasters innocuous, its brevity illusory, acting in the same way that love acts, by filling me with a precious essence. Or rather, this essence was not merely inside me. It was me. I had ceased to feel mediocre, contingent, mortal. Where could it have come from, this powerful joy? I sensed that it was connected to the taste of the tea and the cake, but that it went infinitely far beyond it could not be of the same nature. Where did it come from? What did it mean? How could I grasp it? I drink a second mouthful, in which I find nothing more than in the first, a third that gives me a little less than the second. It is time for me to stop. The virtue of the drink seems to be diminishing. 
Clearly, the truth I am seeking is not in the drink, but in me. The drink has awoken it in me, but does not know this truth, and can do no more than repeat indefinitely with less and less force this same testimony, which I do not know how to interpret, and which I want at least to be able to ask of it again and find again, intact, available to me, soon, for a decisive clarification. Then for a second time I create an empty space before it. I confront it again with the still recent taste of that first mouthful, and I feel something quiver in me, shift, try to rise, something that seems to have been unanchored at a great depth. I do not know what it is, but it comes up slowly. I feel the resistance, and I hear the murmur of the distances traversed. Undoubtedly what is palpating thus deep inside me must be the image, the visual memory which is attached to this taste, and is trying to follow it to me but it is struggling too far away, too confusedly. I can just barely perceive the neutral glimmer in which the elusive eddying of stirred-up colors is blended, but I cannot distinguish the form. I cannot ask it, as the one possible interpreter, to translate for me the evidence of its contemporary, its inseparable companion, the taste. Ask it to tell me what particular circumstances involved, what period of the past. Will it reach the clear surface of my consciousness, this memory, this old moment, which the attraction of an identical moment has come from so far to invite, to move, to raise up from the deepest part of me? I don't know. Now, I no longer feel anything. It has stopped. Gone back down, perhaps. Who knows if it will ever rise up from its darkness again? Ten times I must begin again, lean down toward it, and each time the laziness that deters us from every difficult task, every work of importance has counseled me to leave it, to drink my tea, and think only about my worries today, my desires for tomorrow, upon which I may ruminate effortlessly. And suddenly, the memory appeared. That taste was the taste of the little piece of Madeleine, which on Sunday mornings at Combray because that day I did not go out before it was time for mass. When I went to say good morning to her in the bedroom, my Aunt Leonie would give me, after dipping it in her infusion of tea or lime blossom, when nothing subsists of an old past, after the death of people, after the destruction of things, alone, frailer but more enduring, more immaterial, more persistent, more faithful. Smell and taste still remain for a long time, like souls, remembering, waiting, hoping, upon the ruins of all the rest, bearing without giving way on their almost impalpable droplet the immense edifice of memory. Smell is the underdog of the of, of neuroscience. So back in the day, like Plato, he basically thought that smell and, and taste 
were these minor senses. They're linked to, you know, these bacchanal, animalistic, food extravaganzas. And so that's that's not what a, a great mind philosopher thinks about. And um, so it and really wasn't, no one really studied smell until the 90s as far as neuroscience, which is really, is really late. And the, the Nobel was awarded, I think, in 2001. Um, so that's pretty recent to know about this huge part of our our senses and part of that is well one so Plato thinking that you know is animalistic urge that we should that should be avoided by you know gentlemen of of higher thinking but also if you look at the anatomy of smell we have these two things on the bottom of our brain so kind of like underneath our eyes and if you sort of imagine you're looking up into a brain it looks like kind of like two Twizzlers or like two Pocky sticks sticking out underneath. And they're they're tiny. I mean, they really are about the size of like maybe half a Twizzler on each side. And those are called the olfactory bulbs. And if you look in dogs or rats or mice, their olfactory bulbs are huge. Like it kind of looks like an extra part of their brain, maybe half a brain stuck on there. And we just have these little Twizzlers. So when you look at the brain, Charles Darwin looked at the brain and thought, well, we must not have very good sense of smell because we have these little, these little Twizzlers. We're not a dog or a mouse. And he thought, well, maybe it was because we got color vision or maybe we learned to upright, walk upright. And so our sense of smell, our noses came away from the ground, so smell wasn't as important. And this other guy, Paul Broca, who is really important in language research, he's He's, he's my guy. He also sort of continued this into well into um, sort of modern science. But in reality, we're actually really good at smell. We can do all sorts of things with smell, like things that you wouldn't think about. So, for instance, we can tell if someone's sick by the way their body smells. People rate the, the body odors of people who are sick as sort of smelling less pleasant, and they can kind of guess that they're sick. We can tell our family from other people, so we can tell this smell of like our sister compared to a female friend. We can identify people based on their smells. Like all these weird things that we don't really know we can do, but we actually can do. So there is this preserved sense of smell. Um, And smell is really, really, really important to memory. So when we talk about neuroscience and psychology, there's all different kinds of memory. So we sort of think about memory as this big lump, but actually there's a lot of different kinds. So the biggest division is declarative and non-declarative or procedural memory. And so declarative memory is like knowing facts. And the biggest one we link to smell is autobiographical memory or episodic memory, which is basically like the stuff that happened to you in your life. And so Proust is very famous, right, for his episode with the the Madeline cookies, I think they were, right? And, and the memories that it brings back. And that's actually true. So if we think about our life and we're asked to remember mem- memories from our life, if we are given a smell, like, uh, I don't know, the smell of grass or cookies, I don't know, smell of cookies, vanilla, I guess maybe that would be a big smell of in cookies, we can... We feel like there's, we report that there's more emotion in those memories and um, they're more evocative. We sort of feel them more. So that, it has been proven. Proust was correct. Smell does, is very strongly linked to helping recover our memories. And we're, it helps us recover really, really old memories. So like from when we're toddlers and from when we're kids, even, and up to more current memories. It seems like there's an even playing field when you go through time of how smell helps our memory. So all through our life, smell helps us trigger new memories. So th- those are that's episodic memory or sort of autobiographical memory. But there's lots of different other kinds of memory. So if that's a declarative memory, so the fact memory. There's other kinds of declarative memories too, like learning new facts. So, you know, the capital of 
Alaska is Juneau, right? That's, that's a fact. That's the kind of declarative memory. And we can learn new facts, too. So there's a study where they asked people to learn associations between um, smells and famous paintings. People were much better at remembering the paintings if they had a smell as opposed to just the word of the smell. And the other really interesting thing is that they only remembered the smell and the painting if the emotion of it matched. So they remembered happy smell, pleasant smell, banana, and the happy painting. And they remembered rotten fish and the scream. But if you cross those, if you gave a happy smell and a negative painting, the memories weren't as good. So it was only when the emotion of it matched. So that seems to be an important part of how smell helps our memories too, is our emotion. So if you think about, so we have our Twizzler sticks, the olfactory bulbs under our brain, Part of it seems to be just the location of these things in our brain. So those Twizzler sticks, the olfactory bulbs, lead back to the piriform cortex, which is the, the main part in our neocortex for processing smells. That's really near to all the memory things. So the hippocampus, the anterior cortex, the parent, perianterior cortex, they're all like right there, right sort of underneath our brain, towards the middle of our brain. And the amygdala, which is our emotion center, our 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 fear center as well, that's right there too. So it seems to be like this magic triangle of smell processing and emotion and um, memory that seems to really create this really strong association between smell and memory. Now, as we go forward, you must one, take these lessons seriously. Learn every step as I outline it, not as you think it ought to be learned. Two, practice. Be sincere with me, but more important, be sincere with yourself. Unless you supply the will, I cannot supply the way, and I am sincerely desirous of doing that. Three, follow instructions carefully and you will have personal proof that this course is a pleasure-giving, money-making education for you. Remembering unusual activities, engagements, errands, anything you should do will be as easy as remembering to open your mail or anything you do from habit. Then comes the all-important remembering of names and faces. This is one of the biggest lessons, and the practical value of it cannot be overestimated. It does not matter how treacherous your memory is for names. It can be no worse than mine was. For remember... I could scarcely retain a name for 20 seconds. Now, there are more than 10,000 men and women whom I can call by name on sight, whether I meet them in Seattle, New York, or any other place. You've been listening to The Sounds of the Electro Library, a production from Stonehill's Digital Lab. In this episode, we listen to Wendy Peake read from the Aeneid by Virgil in Homer's Odyssey. Mary Joan Leith recounted a childhood memory about mortality. Janice Lee read from her book, Reconsolidation, or It's the Ghosts Who Will Answer You, and talked with Amra Brooks about writing and memory. Lori Phillips read her poem, Lori. Jared Green read from Marcel Proust's In Search of Lost Time. And Jennifer Sagawa explained the science of memory, smell, and taste. The Lakuta Memory Erasure commercial is from the 2004 film Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. And throughout, you heard me, Emily Sherio, read excerpts from The Roth Memory Course, a simple and scientific method of improving memory and increasing mental power, first published in 1918. 
For more information and to subscribe to the podcast, visit theelectrolibrary.org.